ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. I'm Garrett Brown. I invented the Steadicam, which is a camera stabilizing gadget that was quite revolutionary in the 70s. My name's John Baxter. I wrote Stanley Kubrick, a biography. I haven't seen The Shining for 20 years. The last time I saw it was soon after we did the work. To me, these images are among the most evocative and powerful in all of Kubrick's work. From the very beginning, they tell you what kind of story this is going to be. It's a story of a, a, a single, weak human being moving into a world where he's simply not going to be able to handle what faces him. The image of Mount Hood there in the background uh, in the Pacific Northwest is particularly commanding. I think one of the, the great choices that, uh, that Kubrick made for this film. It's not knowing what's around the next corner. It's pushing into his kind of reality. And it makes the maximum use of film's 3D qualities that happen when a camera moves, which, of course, is my business, moving the camera. Kubrick hated to fly. Uh, for the last uh, 30 years of his life, he wouldn't set foot in a, an aircraft. These were all done, uh, the helicopter shots and all of these early scenes were done by the second unit uh, cameraman, Doug Milsom. But they're nonetheless characteristic of, of Kubrick as is the, the rolling titles. Uh, this uh, brightly coloured moving lettering is something that seems to have stuck with, with Kubrick from uh, the very earliest days of, uh, of, of his films. Uh, most of his uh, films have these rolling titles and he would agonise over the colour, often changing uh, the colour of the titles uh, four and five times until he had exactly uh, the right tone. Kubrick looked at scores of locations before uh, he chose Oregon's Timberline Lodge for the Overlook Hotel uh, in the movie. Uh, the exteriors are all done of the Timberline. The interiors are copied from uh, the Awani Lodge in, in Yosemite. The interiors were rebuilt in England uh, so that he could have uh, complete control uh, over the whole look and, and tone and sense of the film. The lodge becomes a character in its own right, isolated on, on this slope, uh, a slightly sinister look about the, uh, uh, the exterior, which is carried forward into the interior. This, of course, shot in, in England, entirely recreated uh, uh, on the set in the way that Kubrick uh, wanted. The moment I saw these sets prior to production, I knew that I personally wanted to be a part of this. And this was my first day's work on The Shining. And it introduces us to the character of Jack Torrance, played by uh, Jack Nicholson. Nicholson is, a, is an actor that uh, Kubrick has always been interested in. He actually uh, cast him as Napoleon in the version of Napoleon, which he never got to make when, when Nicholson was quite a young actor, and he always wanted to work with him. And to put him into this was, it was a brilliant piece of casting because 
the the concept of the film fits precisely into the character of Nicholson, especially the character of Nicholson as he was uh, at, at this time. He'd just come off uh, making his first film uh, as a director going south. He'd come out of a number of uh, difficult personal problems, and he was a man with issues which could all be used to advantage in the film. Mom? Yeah? You really want to go and live in that hotel for the winter? This scene took four days, and I believe it was originally scheduled for one or one and a half. We got that entrance of Jack's pretty much in one day, which was a bit misleading because almost nothing else in the movie was done in a single day. This is a, an introduction of uh, Jack's family waiting for news of whether he got the job. Shelley Duval playing the wife and young Danny Lloyd, six years old, but playing the son who becomes the central figure in the film as, as the story progresses because it is he who has the, the psychic ability which is called uh, The Shining. Hey, Jack, don't. Well, let's just wait and see. We're all going to have a real good time. Back to the big interview and discussion with uh, the hotel manager, Barry Nelson, where certain uh, elements of the story are introduced. It comes out that the hotel was supposedly built on an ancient uh, Indian burial ground. This is a very popular theme with, uh, with Stephen King, turns up in a number of his stories the idea that somehow in building the, the, the building or uh, somehow creating uh, something on the site that the whole, everything about the building, everything about the people in it is to some extent cursed. Uh, th this interested Kubrick a lot and he, he picked it up and ran with it probably more than uh, the book uh, justified. ...to October 30th, then we closed down completely until the following May. Nicholson seems very smooth and, and, and urbane and convincing, but as we will learn later on, he's a man with many personal difficulties. He has a history of alcoholism. He also supposedly by accident, but perhaps intentionally, injured young Danny in a drunken rage sometime earlier, which establishes him as, as a risk to the family. And once they're isolated in the, uh, in the hotel the risks uh, expand and finally become uh, life-threatening. Barry Nelson explains or mentions that something similar happened with a previous um, a caretaker, uh, a man named Grady, uh, was uh, occupying the, the hotel for a winter and uh, murdered uh, his wife and children. And again, this is something that lurks in the background to be, uh, to be picked up uh, later in the story. It's very striking in this scene, as in a number of other scenes in, in, the, in the film, this symmetrical framing that Kubrick loved. He was meticulous about the, the screen picture. He insisted that every image be, be framed in the proportions of 1.66 to, to 1, which gave it something between widescreen and, and cinemascope. Uh, he, he wanted uh, things placed centrally. He wanted the, the people to fill the frame. Uh, he wanted to make us stare. Motion picture cameras viewfinders have an object called the crosshairs, which is on the so-called ground glass inside where the 
optical image passes through to your eye. And the crosshairs are right in the middle of the frame, subject of many, many arguments between Stanley and myself as to where those damn crosshairs should be placed on a scene. If on an actor's left nostril was what he wanted, no other nostril would do. And, of course, I'd say, well, Stanley, you're not going to print the crosshairs. The audience isn't going to see the damn crosshairs. But bit by bit, over those 40 takes, I learned, first of all, that I could do it with the heavy camera that uh, was in use, a brand-new object called the BL, a silent 35 camera, quite massive. And secondly, I learned that there'd be 40 takes of everything, nearly, and that one paces oneself. And the first five are when you learn to do it, and the 14th is when it gets great, and every take after that is nearly perfect. I also learned to hold the camera absolutely still at the end of these takes because half the time Stanley used my essentially handheld camera to continue the scene as if it was a tripod. And if you stopped with a foot in an awkward spot or with your balance slightly off, you were stuck. That was it. Your discs flew like frisbees and your sweat popped out on your forehead. <laughs> And you just stayed there until Stanley said very quietly, cut. In the beginning of this scene, for example, most of the dialogue and the two-shot that begins the scene was the tail end of my walking shot. Three minutes each time. Well, that is uh, quite a story. <laughs> still hard for me to believe it actually happened here but it did and uh i think you can appreciate why i wanted to tell you about it uh, i certainly can and uh, i also understand why your people in denver left it for you to tell me <laughs> <laughs> well obviously I mean, some people can be put off by the idea of staying alone in a place where something like that actually happened well you can rest assured, Mr. Ullman, that's not going to happen with me. And uh, as far as my wife is concerned, uh, I'm sure she'll be absolutely fascinated when I tell her about it. She's a uh, confirmed ghost story and horror film addict. <laughs> Every scene brings us back to the central theme of The Shining, as far as Kubrick was concerned, which is that of the family. Um, as he said later on, it's the story of a, a family going insane together. Jack is already unhinged, is already on the verge of insanity, and gradually his wife and child are, are drawn into it. Danny, of course, having a psychic ability, is able to pick up on this quicker than anybody and therefore becomes the, the focus and, and the victim of uh, the story. It, to some extent, it reflects Kubrick's own difficulties with, with his father, who was the greatest influence in his life. He was a, a doctor in the Bronx, uh, taught Stanley everything he knew, taught him about music, taught him about literature, taught him chess, uh, and therefore exercised a, not a sinister influence, but a powerful one. So in these images of young Danny talking to his imaginary companion who lives in his mouth and communicates through his uh, forefinger, we get some sense of what was going on behind Kubrick's manner. 
this is just such an extraordinary image. This is one of the great horrific images, I think, in the cinema. I never fail to be astonished by the virtuosity of this, again, the way in which we're, we're dragged into the horror uh, in in an instant and the 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 lift doors gushing blood it's it's an extraordinary um, uh, freudian image really remarkable now hold your eyes still so i can see one of my first convoluted shooting jobs was carrying shelley and the doctor down this corridor and into the living room and setting them down using the vertical booming ability of the study cam, just as if it was the jib arm on a crane or a dolly. And that took place within the first week that I was there. We were in this set for four days, and I did that shot 30 or 40 times, and then realized that the essence of it was, it had almost nothing to do with me, because my takes were roughly identical. It had to do with Stanley watching and watching and waiting and letting the performance play up or play down. And I actually have to report that I liked that a lot. I liked, I liked participating in that way of working because I got a chance to refine what I did to an extent that I'd never even approached before, like a dancer rehearsing or, or being on stage every night for a year. I got to learn the closest dimensions of the apartment and what would happen if this foot was six inches in this direction or if I took another half step. It was actually not that physically demanding either because between each of these takes there would be a three-minute playback. We recorded video on all of them. And then often it's not a three-minute argument about the nature of the shot or where the dreaded crosshairs were and so on, which I realized Stanley sort of used as a way to stall and uh, have another opportunity to do it so that he could attend to his main business, which was really what the actors were doing. Does Tony ever tell you to do things? I don't want to talk about Tony anymore. Okay. And here again, of course, I held the tail end of this shot for two or three minutes, so I began to learn what it takes to cruise up in a, into a position like that and hold it that long. And I got eventually to look around and almost like an acolyte look at the thing as if I was trying to imagine what Stanley was looking for. Shelley's face, for example, is in its way as fascinating as Jack's. I mean, superficially, we wondered, you know, why wasn't a beautiful woman cast for this, this role? Why wasn't the sort of logical wife to Jack Nicholson cast? But by the end of the film, I think it was, I think it was understood why he cast Shelley. Something so odd and unusual and vulnerable and almost, in a way, abusable by circumstance about her that it when I see it now it sort of makes sense to me in the end I think it was great casting they're not heroic they're not they're not movie star types they're flawed and unpredictable and in some ways dangerous in that way they're not TV people at all and Danny Danny is a a phenomenon, an absolute phenomenon. Looking at the film again after all those years, I'm once more struck by how astonishing his face was and his acting and his control of himself. We can always think about having some tests done. 
Danny Lloyd was chosen from uh, a, uh, a through a search of some thousands of children. Uh, he actually was a, a six-year-old boy, never had any uh, uh, dramatic experience, was the son of a railroad family in Midwestern United States. One of the reasons he was cast, I understood, from his trainer, handler, friend, Leon Vitale, who was responsible for teaching Danny his craft. One of the astonishing things that Danny did in the casting session was this, this tony voice and the idea to hold his finger up and move his finger and talk to his finger, which evidently was Danny's idea and which came out in the casting session, by my understanding. So the combination of these three is, is uh, quite fantastic, riveting at, at its best. And Danny held his own with Jack in particular in an astonishing way, and with Stanley in an odd way, and with Leon and everybody else. Uh, Danny has evidently chosen to live his life in relative obscurity and not be an actor and so on, and bless him for that. But I'm almost sorry not to have seen more of him. As sorry as I am in some ways not to be able to see more of Stanley's films at this point. I was terribly sorry that he died so, in effect, prematurely. And uh, I think before he had really finished Eyes Wide Shut. On this particular occasion, my husband just used too much strength and he injured Danny's arm. Anyway, something good did come out of it all because he said, uh, Wendy, I'm never going to touch another drop. And if I do, you can leave me. And he didn't. And he hasn't had any alcohol in uh, five months. These shots, incidentally, were done in the Going to the Sun Highway at Glacier National Park. And I'm pleased to say it was my notion we had... I shot for Stanley's second unit in Colorado. Colorado is a wonderful place, but the roads going up the Rockies don't have this level of detail or vertiginous plunges and so on. And the dailies that were coming back from the helicopter shots were, were dull. And I finally said, having just been there, I said, why don't you look at the Going to the Sun Highway, an astonishing piece of road in Glacier National Park. And that's where Stanley dispatched Greg McGillivray and his partner to make these astonishing flying shots, which are so Kubrick to me, so centered compositions, penetrating space. And Greg McGillivray did, a, did it with amazing simplicity. He simply bolted a Araflex camera to the front skid of the helicopter. And then his great trick, he balanced the blades of the helicopter so there would be no vibration. He had the blades balanced, which apparently is a maintenance operation for helicopters. And he and his very gifted pilot simply flew the framing of those shots. So it's smooth as glass. It's an ultra, ultra wide angle lens. It's great. Got snowbound one winter in the mountains. They had to resort to cannibalism in order to stay alive. Mindy. Ate each other, huh? They had to. to At this point, the story begins to diverge from the original Stephen King image. King's novel is a novel about a hotel which is haunted. It's that simple. He never meant it to be anything more than that. But for Kubrick, it was the story 
of the family gradually going over the edge and the hotel exacerbating that, making, making it worse uh, and finally driving them to the brink. It's the, the point at which the, the two stories diverge and they continue to, to diverge wider and wider until at the very end The, the Shining, as originally written by Stephen King, has, has really very little to do with, with Kubrick's uh, version of it, which is very much psychoanalytical and Freudian. And in this, Diane Johnson was crucial. Diane Johnson and Kubrick worked on the story. She said what she found emerging was a sense of family hate uh, and also a sense of the father and son conflict, uh, which, which dominate the, the, the film. As Jack uh, is introduced to, to the hotel and his family is, uh, is shown around, uh, we begin to get a sense of the hotel, the building almost as, as being an entity of, it, of itself. The design motifs uh, recall the, the Indian burial ground on which it's supposedly sighted, uh, uh, and that, that sense again of sort of ancient evil things to be, to be expiated. The sheer size of the hotel was one of the biggest problems for, for Kubrick because he insisted on it being built more, more or less to scale or the interior rooms being built to scale. Getting around w w was an enormous problem. The tours of the hotel give you the first idea of the vastness of these spaces. In between shots, one of my jobs was to go off and find ways to ride on vehicles so that I wouldn't have to walk and run all of these traveling shots. And we tried every vehicle you can think of that was available in the studio, every kind of cart, and finally settled on a bizarre wheelchair that Stanley had invented with a man named Ron Ford, which I could sit on and therefore not have to tire myself out walking for everything and it created a sort of fluid, hypnotic kind of uh, style which, which eventually suffuses the, uh, the whole of the film. Stanley didn't respect this idea at first, but actually it made a lot of sense because the study cam takes out the bumps of the floor and I'm free to concentrate on framing and so on. So as we watch Danny playing, we, we, we see again the, the images of the, of the two uh, Grady twins who were murdered by their father, a, a crime that, uh, that is to be replicated by Jack. So the, the, the hotel is really beginning to emerge as, as a character in the story, and with it, uh, all of its uh, demons. Most of this was shot in continuity. We shot these scenes in the order that they'll be seen in the movie. I think part of that was because Stanley wanted the opportunity to change things, rewrite, alter, plug in an inspiration. It's a curious mix because his nature is to control every aspect of the shooting from the air conditioning to the logistics of the lunch to the distances to the various trailers to the choreography of the various players going stage to stage. And yet, for himself, in the end, he wants to preserve every possible bit of spontaneity. And he's not above grabbing a hold of my camera and pushing it to get the framing that he wants, which is the first. I'd never, no one had ever done that before. The irritating thing to me is that it worked and the framings were good. <laughs> Stanley's daughter, Vivian, shot the making of documentary while all this was going on. And at one point, I let myself be overheard saying that when Stallone had grabbed the camera, that reflexively I had tried to punch him. And Stanley never grabbed the camera again, but I think he knew it was a gag. 
Here's the exterior in Boramwood, and that hill pushed in there by bulldozer and planted with ever smaller pine trees to force the perspective, concealed a suburban neighborhood right over the top of the hill. But contrasted with this is the, the pastels and the, and the domestic tranquility of the, uh, uh, of the interiors as against the, the, this, this exterior where the, the building looms above the people, dwarfing them again. Shortly we'll be introduced uh, to a crucial element, the fact that in the winter it becomes snowbound and it's, a possible, it's impossible to get around except in the snowcat. This ballroom set is so vast that it's inconceivable that it would fit within even the giant exterior of the hotel in Oregon or Mount Hood, wherever it is. Before we came to work on this set, which must have been several weeks in, every day there was a lighting test made here. And these practical lights were run up and down in various combinations by the late, dearly departed John Alcott, who was the director of photography, and tested on film. And one of the things that we did every day was, during the lunchtime dailies, was look at the film tests of the lighting. So even lighting took place over numerous, numerous iterations where it was lit and then looked at and adjusted and tested and lit and looked at. This is to bring us to Halloran, the Guardian, played by Scatman Crothers, who is uh, another of the crucial figures uh, in, the, uh, in the story. He, too, has the psychic ability uh, of young Danny. He has the shining, uh, and he can communicate with, with young Danny. Dan, did you get tired of bombing the universe? Yeah. <laughs> Come on over here. Thanks. Thank you, Susie. Dick, if you're ready to do it now, I think it'd be a good idea if you could show Mrs. Torrance the kitchen while I continue on with Jack. It'd be a pleasure. Right this way, Mrs. Torrance. Great. See you later, hon. Bye, darling. Here's one of my favorite shots in the film, backing up with the study camera in this vast kitchen set where it quickly became clear that for it to look good, wide angle like this, I almost had to make racing corners and cut all the corners with the camera. And, of course, not hook myself on mixing machines and racks of pots and pans and so on. That's a wonderful way to, to see a space. Yeah, this whole place is such an enormous maze. I feel like I'll have to leave a trail of breadcrumbs every time I come in. <laughs> as as uh, Shelley Duval and Danny are led through uh, the, the storerooms and the kitchens of the hotel, Halloran uh, and she discuss it in terms of a maze. And a maze is, is what, uh, of course, becomes the central image of the film later on. This, again, sets up so many images that will turn up later, uh, later in the story. For such an important character as, as Halloran, uh, the, the casting were, was fairly straightforward. About 40 chickens, 50 sirloin steaks, two dozen of pork rolls, and 20 legs of lamb. You like lamb, Doc? No. You don't? Well, what's your favorite food, then? French fries and ketchup. <laughs> well, I think we can manage that, too, Doc. Come along now. Watch your step. Scatman Crothers, who, who was a minor character actor and had been a, a band leader and singer in his youth, uh, was a friend of Jack Nicholson, and he persuaded Jack Nicholson uh, to suggest him to, the, to Kubrick for, for the role of Halloran. I think it appealed to Kubrick that that uh, that uh, Halloran might be seem credible as a person who shared the um, the psychic ability uh, of Danny. Nah. What's up, Doc? 
It proved to be a terrible experience uh, for Crothers, who wasn't a technical actor, and, and Kubrick, who by this time was famous for putting his actors through terrible experiences and multiple takes, drove him endlessly, making him retake uh, simple scenes 10, 20, 30 times, finally driving Crothers to say, what do you want, Stanley? What do you want? Even a shot like this was done a surprising number of times, during which I, since this was a zoom and a conventional camera on a tripod, I sat it out in the background somewhere, working on getting the camera down at the eye level of Danny. We had made an arrangement for that before I left from the States, and it actually involved an upside-down version of the Steadicam with the camera on the bottom and all the rest of it up top, so that the lens in so-called low mode could be down at a Danny eye level, that waist level between waist and knee. And there's some fascinating things about the cinematography. For example, Stanley loves wide-angled lenses. They make the sets look large, and they augment that sense of motion. But I learned quickly that these wide-angle lenses need to be on a camera that's level fore and aft, level front to rear, because if you tilt up or tilt down even slightly, those lenses do something called keystoning, which makes the set look distorted and somewhat bizarre. So for you would-be filmers and videographers out there, if you're using ultra-wide lenses, keep the camera a bit low and keep it level fore and aft, and it keeps the sets looking much, much better much more impressive. Yes, well, the guests and some of the staff left yesterday, but the last day's always very hectic. Everybody wants to be on their way as early as possible. By 5 o'clock tonight, you'll never know anybody was ever here. Just like a ghost ship, huh? Yes. This is a particularly significant scene where uh, Halloran and Danny bond for the first time and Halloran explains that he too has the psychic ability which his grandmother named Shining that gives him the ability to, if not communicate d directly with him, at least understand something about uh, the experience that he's going through. When I was a little boy, my grandmother and I could hold conversations entirely without ever opening our mouths. She called it Shining. Scatman and Danny's relationship in this movie is a, a key and interesting one. This scene between Scatman and, and uh, Danny Lloyd has acquired almost legendary status. It may be the most number of takes in history for a single close-up, this one. Stanley did 148 takes of a seven-minute scene on this close-up. Why don't you want to talk about it? And a great many takes on Danny Slosa. I'm not supposed to. Somebody once said of Kubrick that he was not like a film director, really. He was more like a, a medieval artisan working in, a, in an ivory tower, sort of sculpting and, 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 and grinding and polishing away until he had the, the perfect result and the perfect image. And, and once again, one, one sees with Kubrick this wonderful sense of, of beautiful framing. You, you have a, a, a real feeling for the characters and for the exchange because he works so close and so symmetrically. Like when I sleep, and he shows me things. But when I wake up, I can't remember everything. Does your mom and dad know about Tony? 
Yes. You notice Scatman's eyeline is to camera right here. Danny's now to camera left. That's how reverses are done. That means that the two shot would have to be over here on the side that we're on now, this side, a wider over. So if Stanley shoots the opposite angle, which I'm not even sure is in this sequence, he also had to shoot all the eye lines for the other, the other angle. Think real hard, Doc. Think. None of us could understand what he was after 148 times with Scatman. And Scatman was astonishing. He was, he, he gave and gave every take. He, he was there for Stanley. It was a version of what Jack and everyone else did there. They simply turned themselves over to Stanley and let themselves be employed, you might say. He wanted to see the permutations, the variations. He wanted to see every possibility. He wanted to let the actors play it out, get their sea legs, as it were. And, and I think he just wanted to see it. He wanted to see how it fell out. Is there something bad here? Well... You know, Doc, when something happens, it can leave a trace of itself behind. Say, like, if someone burns toast. Well, maybe things that happen leave other kind of traces behind. Not things that anyone can notice, but things that people who shine can see. Just like they can see things that haven't happened yet. Finally, Scatman couldn't take it anymore. Stanley felt, I guess, cruel in some way and put an end to it. And then when Stanley walked away, Scatman said to me, oh, that's Stanley, he's really something. And, you know, I had the impression that he had almost deliberately wept a bit just to stop the torment. The uh, significance of uh, room 237 in the hotel uh, appears, it, it's, it, as we'll see later in the story, room 237 and uh, uh, the things that go on there uh, represent the, the heart of the horror of uh, what is going on in the hotel. Nothing. There ain't nothing in room 237. Everything that one sees in The Shining, which is part of why I'm so impressed seeing it again now, was real and done in real time. There was only one slight reality-changing effect, which I'll describe later, but the rest of it was actually done right there, then, in the camera. Boom. No digital stuff, no CGI, no painted-in things, no green screens, etc. And that's an experience that's hard to even hard to even find these days because it's so easy to digitize. I think if the movie was made now, they would have inserted scenery outside these windows. As it was, those are just, you know, diminishing sizes of pine trees against the vast white 700,000 watts of light. There was always an element of, of play about Kubrick. He agreed with Orson Welles, I think, that a, a, the making a film was access to the greatest train set any, any uh, child ever had. And he loved doing these scenes. None of us knew quite how impressive this was until we sat in the dailies and heard this astonishing sound. I had the microphone on the Steadicam. 
the wheelchair, of course, had rubber wheels and didn't make a noise, and the mic was on the front of the wheelchair and very directionally aimed forward at Danny's very noisy plastic wheel, so of course that worked wonderfully well. But even Stanley was astonished by the sound and by the effect that it had on that shot. That lens, by the way, was nearly two or three inches above the level of the floor, which is one reason it looked so cool. You, you have this sense of, of, of a flow uh, of, of images and, and uh, of people's minds moving around, somehow rattling around almost in this, in this huge building. So these little scenes of domesticity are curiously anachronistic. Somehow it no longer seems relevant to have a normal home life in, uh, in such a place, but Jack seems to be responding to it. Uh, in these scenes, uh, he's almost his old self, but as he grimaces in the mirror, as he begins to look a little more manic, we, we can see Kubrick favouring slightly wilder, slightly more exaggerated facial movements. He would have done this scene 50 or 60 times, and the, the shots that he chose to use would very often be the last ones where, where Nicholson and, uh, and Duval are almost mugging, they're telegraphing their feelings a lot. And you have a sense that somehow the, uh, the hotel is uh, exercising its effect. I'm back into the habit of writing every day. I'm sure you can imagine that when a scene like this is done in an interior set, particularly if it's done in the same set day after day, the set remains dressed, it remains lit so that one basically turns the lights on and adjusts the dimmers and you're ready to go. You acquire such a familiarity with the set that the crew troops in as if they were working in a sitcom and operating in this, or a soap opera and operating in the same sets day after day. And the call sheet contains, for a matter of form, the list of things that have to be there. This call sheet would have described the bacon and the eggs and the, the flowers on the trolley uh, of her breakfast trolley. And the particulars of wardrobe would all be specified in the call sheet. Like a signal, we see the typewriter, which will become a vehicle again of the next stage of his madness as he begins work on the novel that he's supposed to be writing. But, of course, isn't writing it. He distracts himself with games. This is one of our earliest close looks at this gigantic Colorado lounge set. And this one had a million watts of light outside those great rows of windows to the right. Jack did that scene 40 times, throwing that tennis ball six or eight times. We're introduced for the first time to the maze that again will become more important as we go on. There was no maze. In fact, the maze was created uh, on an airfield near uh, London. The branches are stapled onto slabs of uh, plywood and the interiors are empty. Of course, Kubrick would have been aware of the, of the Freudian significance of the maze and, and uh, probably even of, uh, of Alfred Hitchcock's remark that the, the convolutions of the human brain uh, re resemble those of a maze also. And we increasingly see the hotel as a, as a reflection of, of Jack's disturbed state of mind. 
And these scenes were great fun. Again, sort of racing turns, cutting the corners. I still love the way this looks. The ultra-wideness of the lens makes the maze look enormous. The only special effect that we did in the entire film that might be in the same league as some of the effects done so casually today was Stanley found an apartment high up on a nearby apartment block, and he built just that center section of maze down at the base of the apartment and dressed it in with that colored gravel and made a zooming shot down into that bit of maze with doubles for uh, Shelley and Danny. And that center of the maze is actually matted into an identical zoom on the maze model, which was quite a good model. And that's it, folks. That's it for special effects. The rest of it actually happened in some form or another. I find myself less and less interested in those special effect shots because they, they're almost always overdone. It's so easy for them to be overdone. And more and more interested in scenes like this where it's actually happening. This huge stage uh, would later be used, in fact, for the Well of Souls in Raiders of the Lost Ark and for numerous other massive, massive films in, in building it uh, or having it built. Kubrick uh, sort of had an influence on the pattern of um, English cinema for the next ten years. To write the, the screenplay of The Shining, Kubrick did find a writer who didn't have any credentials as a screenplay writer, but seemed to share some of his, uh, his preoccupations. Diane Johnson was a novelist and academic uh, from California. And you can bet Stanley wrote the dialogue for the TV commentators about the woman disappearing on the mountain, but it all contributes to the effect that snow and isolation are on the way here. And this little environment is about to be sealed. And we start to get into the hotel almost as an entity. Danny's like a microscopic little mobile guy, you know, in the veins and arteries of this hotel. I still like watching what he does with this. One consequence of the shooting schedule, which, although scheduled for 100 days, went on to 250 or something like that, is that Danny noticeably got older during it. Grew up, retired. No, but nearly. Leon his trainer, handler, friend, worked very, very effectively with Danny. He, he was extremely enthused about the work. He loved his days. He enjoyed being on the picture. He liked the way Leon taught him how to do it, and he was an amazingly quick study to give back the timings and things that look like the work of a, a grown-up actor. It's tough to get kids to not move quickly or to do things in their kid metabolism, which is much, much faster than an adult metabolism. And, Leon managed to get Danny slowed down to the point where it's just riveting watching him. Danny understands the significance of room 237. In the book, it's room 217, but there really was a room 217 at the Timberline Hotel, uh, and the owners asked that they change uh, the, the number. So Kubrick chose the, the number 237, which... There's a number that he'd also used in Dr. Strangelove. It is the, the code number that has to be punched into the computer in the B-52 in order to uh, trigger the atomic holocaust that ends the film.
these beautiful smooth tracks just part of the hypnotic sense of the uh, the shooting of the film and that sense of moving into Jack's mind and into the maze uh, that, that's inside begins to become clear in this scene as, as Nicholson writes what is supposed to be his his great novel but will turn out to be both less and more than that you can start to see Kubrick's technique working he would have taken all of these scenes scores of times, 60 and 80 times in some cases. Uh, and Gordon Stainforth, the editor, has explained uh, the effect that, that this had on, on the actors. Uh, he said that, that Nicholson, for his first five or six uh, takes, w would do it in a fairly conventional way. Uh, then uh, he'd run out of ideas, so he'd, he'd sort of relax. He'd, he'd spell himself a bit uh, and, and do five or six takes where he was really very neutral. And then Kubrick would say, OK, do something different. And and Nicholson would begin, well, to mug, in effect. He would begin to, to do exaggerated movements of the eyebrows, wild looks in the eyes, f very vigorous physical gestures. His voice would rise to a pitch of hysteria. Uh, and it's those takes, very often, that, that Kubrick chose to use. I was here while this was shot, and I saw that Jack did takes that were rather friendly and takes that were more and more harsh and takes that were more and more manic and the final edit was selected by Stanley. Let me explain something to you. Whenever you come in here and interrupt me, you're breaking my concentration. You're distracting me. And it will then take me time to get back to where I was. Understand? Yeah. We're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here, you hear me typing. Whether you don't hear me typing, whatever the fuck you hear me doing in here, when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. Now, do you think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine. Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? The irony of, of this technique is that Shelley Duval, who didn't have much to do but just sort of sit back and react, found it extremely tiring to be working over and over, take after take, with this manic performance. It's the mania that makes us believe in the second half of the story and, and the violence that, that ensues. All through this part of the story, the hotel is beginning to become more and more isolated. The snow is building up. Gradually, all ways of communicating are, are cut off. To me, this image is one of the two or three key shots in the film, almost as vivid in its way as the image of, of the door's gushing blood because the way Kubrick tracks in shows Jack Nicholson in his essence, the man at the end of his tether, a man with physical and emotional problems, a man who, who was facing enormous difficulties on screen. The second unit, which photographed the hotel in Washington, went back to do winter scenes there as well. And, of course, it cuts perfectly with the construction of the Overlook in England. 
This was the tail end of a long walking shot, so I, my eye goes to the frame edges. If I see the tiniest bit of motion, it reminds me this was the tail end of one of my shots, impersonating a tripod. I began my career shooting in the feature business three movies at once nearly in 1975. Bound for Glory was the first one, which was the Woody Guthrie story. I did a kind of revolutionary walking shot through the crowd. And then Rocky, which was used to study cam because the director had seen this demo. One of the shots in it was my then girlfriend, now wife, Ellen, running down the art museum steps. So I ended up on Rocky doing things that had never been done before, chasing Stallone around and following him through the meat market and in the ring, of course, during the fight scenes. And I think I had perhaps done eight other movies between those three and the beginning of The Shining, intended to do special shots brought in to do this or that sequence. And what didn't occur to people until Stanley got the idea that this was a tool that you could use every day on a film. So this was the first time that I spent, was there for the entire schedule from beginning to end and available as Stanley's tool or weapon for penetrating space, for moving, for following things without the hassles of laying rails and, and worrying about the quality of the ground. You notice these compositions are, are typically very centered in this film. This was something that Kubrick liked, particularly in this period, sort of Palladian-centered compositions where the so-called appearing point where we're headed is right in the middle of the frame. For the moment, we're only aware of a growing sense of foreboding as the hotel is cut off from the outside world, connected only by this thin wire of the radio telephone, which very quickly will disappear also. And this is Torrance. Okay, we'll do that. It was real nice talking to you. Bye. Over and out. Even if you go around a corner, you go from one centered composition to another. It's part of that eerie, three-dimensional, penetrating space that works so well. Diabolical to operate, of course, because everywhere in your shot are verticals that need to stay that way. Kubrick very cleverly introduces more and more graphic elements into the story as Jack's mania increases. For the first time in this scene, we see the actual murder of the two Grady twins hatcheted to death by their father. And, of course, it, it terrifies young Danny, who immediately takes refuge in uh, his uh, hidden companion, in his uh, forefinger. Come and play with us, Daddy. Forever. And ever. And ever. I actually learned my, I think I learned my trade on The Shining, really. I was, I was good with the thing when I showed up, and I think without the slightest immodesty, I can say I became a master at it by the end of this schedule through the miracle of repetition. I also learned a hell of a lot about filmmaking in general because every aspect of it interested Stanley, from the physics of lenses to the steadiness of his projectors that he owned, which were rebuilt every three or four weeks so they'd be absolutely steady to the exact sharpness of the lenses that he used. He resurrected some ancient tests called harp tests, 
to test exactly whether the calibrations on his lenses were as, as written and graved, as engraved on the sides. And the result, of course, was that anybody there who paid the slightest attention got to participate in this dialogue and, and learned a hell of a lot. I think this is summer of 42, the movie on the screen. I'm not sure the significance of that. Must have been another Warner Brothers picture. The snow outside, by the way, what's falling is styrofoam. And what's piled up in the foreground outside is salt. Dairy salt, dendritic dairy salt, so-called, which is a diabolical substance to work in. Salt rots your boots if you walk in it. Salt corrodes the equipment. I think uh, salt had something to do with why people didn't like working in salt mines. They were hot and they were full of salt, not unlike many of the scenes in The Shining. We had 900 tons of salt. Of course, that's an inter interior you're looking at through those windows. That's all of 10 or 12 feet out to the lighting. I won't make a sound, I promise I'll tiptoe. All right, but really don't make a sound. I won't, Mom. And make sure you come right back, because I'm going to make lunch soon. Okay? Okay, Mom. This apartment as well as I know my own house. In some cases, it was just easier to use me standing there than to bring in tripods and dollies and so on. This is Nicholson at his most vulnerable, his most sensitive. He's not mugging here. How's it going, Dad? Okay. Have a good time? Yes, Dad. The fact that his hair is disordered, the fact that the, 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 the picture is framed in this way, in this domestic interior, it just gives you a glimpse of 
Perhaps the Jack Torrance that might have been. Dad? Yeah. Do you like this hotel? Yeah. I do. I love it. Don't you? Jack Torrance that existed before he became enmeshed in this, uh, in, in this continuing nightmare of the hotel. Did your mother ever say that to you? That I would hurt you? No, Dad. You sure? Yes, Dad. I love you, Danny. This is one of my favorite scenes in the movie, and it was done a fantastic number of times in order to get this real-time, real effect to actually happen. Phenomenal. That, that tennis ball was actually sent in by somebody, and it took about 50 tries to get. But it's, you know, and by the time it was done, we were all bored with the idea, but on, on screen, it's tremendously effective. Indications of, of what a great filmmaker Kubrick really is come with these scenes here where we begin to see the evil of the, of the hotel becoming manifest even to Shelley Duval and to Danny. This ball just comes rolling into the shot and we're not sure where it comes from. We're not sure whether even to believe it as objective reality or as a fantasy in the same way as we don't know whether to accept that there really is something evil in room 237 uh, or that Danny is somehow creating a fantasy to justify and, and explain what's happening to him in perfectly mundane ways. I think the editorial pace of most modern movie making, even most movie making contemporary with The Shining was much faster than this. And there's something that I really like about scenes being given their amount of time. Jack Torrance is subject to nightmares in which he imagines the family being murdered, as will almost happen at the very end of the story. 
I had spent a lot of my career early on with a study cam running here and there because the original conception was it was a stunt camera. It allowed you to run on rough ground and up steps and so on. I almost did no running whatsoever in the entire production of The Shining, except this one shot. When I invented the thing, this is what I thought I'd end up doing. This is what I thought it was good for, it was running shots. It wasn't clear that it was precise enough to do the slow-moving, imitating Dolly stuff. That one actually worked out pretty well. This is a scene, oddly enough, that we did almost like anyone else would make a movie. We did it once or twice. And that was it. Everyone was in shock. We did it. We moved on. Not sure why. I think Stanley just had a sense that he had it. He didn't want to do it again. I don't know why. It's the most horrible dream I ever had. It's okay. It's okay now. Really. At one point, early on in the negotiations to do this picture, I was told by Stanley's brother-in-law, Jan Harlan, that I was to be paid a rather low number. Since I wanted to do the movie, I agreed. And Jan very blithely said, of course, we'll never go more than six months. And fortunately, I had the wit to say at the time, well, if you do go longer than six months, then it's going to be my normal U.S. rate, which was a good deal more. And I said, at six months, I have to shoot Rocky II, as I'd been booked for that. So I had to arrange that I would train another operator to take over for me at that point. And then I said, and if you have me back after that, I need to fly back and forth on the Concorde, week on, week off, week in England, week in the States, because by then I have some other things I have to shoot. And Jan said, ah, that's okay, don't worry, Gav, we're not going over six months. Well, this is the six-month point you're looking at now. This is the work of Ray Andrew, an operator that I trained, who took over to do study cam shots on the dolly and on the wheelchair. While I was gone for a month to work on Rocky II, and when I came back, we were on the Concorde back and forth deal. As this scene ends with Danny emerging from room 237 with the marks of strangulation on his throat, we're thrown once again into total confusion. Kubrick had always had, uh, some would have said, an overdeveloped sense of protection towards his children. One of the reasons why he'd moved from the United States to live in Britain was that he he felt they were under risk uh, from uh, an atomic war. And and he remains in all his films curiously sensitive to the vulnerability of children. It, it makes this particular scene very significant because the the fact that the Danny has been apparently attacked, perhaps by the malevolent creatures in room two three seven, but perhaps by Jack, who after all has a history of having injured Danny in the past gives a special charge to it and Kubrick emphasizes this with this this final shot of of a zoned out almost crazed uh, disbelieving Jack barely able to encompass the thought that that he may have injured the child he loves With the attack on Danny, Kubrick ratchets up the horror one notch before the possible reality of the evil within the hotel was represented by something as banal as a a rubber ball rolled into shot. And we never did see what was in room 237, which may or may not have attacked him. But now the demons begin to become much more real. We can see it in Jack's behaviour, which is increasingly eccentric and physical. 
and also in the reappearance of his old nemesis, alcohol. It was uh, him being drunk which had led to the attack on Danny earlier on uh, in the story. And now we see his entry into the great bar of the hotel as as a trigger for not just a, a simple manifestation, uh, a brief manifestation of the demons, but the real thing in the person of a, a real barman with real alcohol. Stanley wanted control over every aspect. At one point, he got the idea that there should be a speedometer on the wheelchair that I was riding on so that we could move the wheelchair exactly at 6.2 miles an hour for every time we did the take or whatever it was. And I began to be afraid that Stanley would hang an outboard wheel on me for even a uh, walking shot, like those test cars that are on the track with an outboard speedometer wheel. So <laughs> we were very much hoping that that idea would go away, and fortunately it did. This is a scene that I like a lot, and the reveal is quite good. Hi, Lloyd. A little slow tonight, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is, Mr. Torrance. And in a wonderful coup de théâtre, uh, the barman is played by one of Kubrick's favorite actors uh, who, with whom he had worked repeatedly on films from The Killing onwards, Joe Turkell, uh, who always to him represented a figure of solidity, reliability, uh, good nature and amiability, perfect as a barman. In a way, one could say that the barman character is almost like Hal, the computer in 2001, the voice of reason uh, who supplies everything the man needs but never really becomes human himself and increasingly becomes an, an image of the sinister and the malevolent. Say, Lloyd, it seems I'm temporarily late. <laughs> How's my credit in this joint anyway? Your credit's fine, Mr. Torrance. That's swell. I like you, Lloyd. I always liked you. You were always the best of them. Best goddamn bartender from Timbuktu to Portland, Maine. Or Portland, Oregon, for that matter. Thank you for saying so. Here's to five miserable months on the wagon and all the irreparable harm that it's caused me. And with the first drink in some time, Jack begins to plummet into the abyss of violence. With this performance, Nicholson really turned a corner in his acting career. Up until his performances, the, the, the sort of degenerate drifter and drunk uh, uh, in uh, Going South, uh, he'd been 
fairly conventional performer uh, in films like The King of Marvin Gardens and, and uh, Five Easy Pieces. You begin to see him behaving in a much more unhinged and crazed manner with Going South. And under Kubrick, it's almost as if he has a postgraduate course in going over the top. He, he began to describe his performances in, in uh, slightly different terms. He, he called his performance in this sort of balletic, as if the physical was more important than the, than the gestures. Um, his biographer said that he descended into, into lunacy. He became crazier and crazier with each role. Uh, and one can see in, in this, particularly in this scene, the, the, the Jack Nicholson of the last uh, 10 or 15 years, the, uh, the mad joker in Batman. It's, it's a grotesque. It's a clown. Uh, it's a, it's a madman. It's all in this performance. Bitch. As long as I live, she'll never let me forget what happened. I did hurt her once, okay? It was an accident. Completely unintentional. Could have happened to anybody. It was three goddamn years ago. The little fucker had thrown all my papers all over the floor. All I tried to do was pull them up. The momentary loss of muscular coordination. You extra foot pounds of energy per second per second. You would think that we would have shot Jack walking in and then Shelley walking in immediately. But we shot in continuity. We shot Jack walking in, then his whole dialogue scene, then we reset for Shelley. There's someone else in the hotel with us. There's a crazy woman in one of the rooms. She tried to strangle Danny. Are you out of your fucking mind? No. We didn't get to see these clips until we actually saw the movie. They're quite fun. Reminds me of the news culture of the 70s, which is very different than today. This, of course, is Scatman's apartment in Florida. And Stanley selected the uh, set dressing for the apartment for reasons that are obscure. This set was built on one of the smaller stages. And, of course, it was anticipated that we would be here some 15, 14, 13 weeks after shooting began. We're actually arriving to shoot it now months and months after that, but the set has been dressed and ready and essentially lit, and the lighting has been tested and observed in the dailies months before. Winds tonight and tomorrow with temperatures dropping well below zero. 
I haven't worked for Clint Eastwood. Uh, friends of mine have worked for him, but his way of working is well known, and that is Clint doesn't use video assist to watch what's being shot. He simply watches the action as it takes place. He typically does one or two or three takes at the most, and production moves on. A tremendously different way to work, and of course, Clint never would nor could shoot The Shining, and Stanley never would have or could have, I think, shot the movies that Clint did. Probably he wouldn't be interested in them and vice versa. But what I learned over the years was that the way of working is almost indistinguishable from the, the result. It's a part and parcel of it. It's the way Stanley works is the way, the only way that a movie like this could be made. Here's another point of view, Jack's point of view. Notice the difference in quality between a point of view, which is an entity's look-see, you might say, and a normal traveling shot, which is your omniscient third God's eye view, audience's eye view, that is not meant to feel like something is lurking, which for me is a good reason that handheld isn't a great way to shoot you know, the general run of moving shot, because the shaky camera looks like somebody's doing it. Somebody's looking, somebody's there. Curiously enough, shooting a nude scene for a camera operator is a generally completely non-erotic phenomenon. My mental monologue would have been extremely boring during this. It's all to do with framing, and of course I'm watching the scene on a small green video monitor, so which takes great deal of the heat out of the phenomenon and it's all about framing and well not not all about framing i mean even on a small green screen it's it's a novelty it's fun after six months on the same sets it's it's diverting the fantasies that uh, jack encounters in room 237 uh, in, in particular, the image of the beautiful nude girl who turns into the, the rotting corpse of the older woman. Very much out of Kubrick's own fantasies. Uh, they're not in the original story. And, and they do reflect his, his disquiet and discomfort with, with physical sex. He never really had a believable sex scene in any of his, uh, his films, and it was never his strong uh, suit. interesting thing about it of course is when that very clever cut reveals that it's an old rotting old hag in his arms it was somewhat bizarre for the crew because the 
rotting old hag was as known in the call sheet, Mrs. Gibson. And Mrs. Gibson started to work on the 10th of November and I think was in makeup every day for eight days. The call sheet actually specified a dressing gown and a carpet slippers for Gibson, which I thought was pretty amusing. And Mrs. Gibson was very unselfconscious. She would stand around and have the makeup touched up. The mind boggles. I'm tempted to look up Gibson and find out what her story is. certain amount of stir craziness of cabin fever increasingly as we got down closer and closer to the kind of madness that overtakes Jack's character kind of sympathetic madness overtook all of us but the pace the pace of the work never increased that's something that amazed me about Stanley was that he had he never relaxed that intent first of all to make it all perfect and secondly to have it play according to his his own interior clock somehow. This is very conventionally cut between the fantasy of the hotel and the reality of Halloran, who has made the psychic connection with young Danny and is now realising that he must go to the hotel to, to rescue him. And characteristic of that element in Kubrick's character that loved the commercial movie. He was, he was a curious filmmaker in that he wanted at the same time to make films that were intellectually respectable but also uh, were, would appeal to, to large audiences and were cut in conventional ways. You see it in, in these confrontations and family scenes. They're, they're banal in many respects, very conventionally cut and ordered, but they're designed to draw the audience into the story, to prepare them in a way for the next slice of fantasy. I enjoyed watching John Alcott at work because Stanley and John worked out a way for me to look almost 360 degrees around a set like this. And the way it was done was by very clever dimmer cues for these practical lights so that the lights I was facing were always dimmed up to be the brightest lights, and the lights behind me were dimmed down as I spun around and looked in different directions, mainly so that the shadows that they would have caused were diminished and washed out by the, the, light, the practical lights that were in the foreground as I turned round and round. Quite a wonderful choreography to, and quite invisible to the viewer. And John would hold up a square flag and flag off any light that was likely to create a shadow. And we got quite good at this, particularly in sets like this where we worked over and over and over. Of course, nothing that we did, no matter how well we did it, sped up the work. It was 
a tour of duty that just had its own timing and it just went on and on. What happened? There is no other explanation. In this scene in particular, where Jack... Uh, in a way, tells her his side of the story, his fantasy. It's very difficult to believe in any part of it because his performance is, is so mannered at this point. Uh, obviously, a very late take uh, when he was really working exclusively on his nerves. And it makes the scene both incredible but also curiously disturbing, as if the fantasy is penetrating to every corner of this domestic reality. Get him out of here. Nicholson is looking particularly tired in these scenes. He insisted on living well away from the set uh, in Chelsea and had to be brought in uh, every morning. Uh, most of his sleep he would get in the car driving out to the studio. It is so fucking difficult of you to create a problem like this when I finally have a chance to accomplish something when I'm really in my work. And, of course, the more wasted he looked on film, the more logical it would be for Jack simply to go back to London after the work and stay up all night and get no sleep and become a completely dissipated guy. At least that was how we imagined it, because he showed up always asleep and looking exactly the way he'd looked when he left, generally arriving within 30 seconds of his call time. But for all we knew, he'd been asleep on the car seat all night. And from this time on, he gets more and more wasted and crazed and distracted. In the documentary that uh, Vivian Kubrick made about the production of the uh, of the film, you can see that uh, uh, he is really beginning to uh, to suffer uh, from the distractions of his life uh, off the set. The strain is also probably attributable in part to the fact that by this time the the shooting period had quadrupled. It started at seventeen weeks and had now gone to three times that, and they still weren't finished. Uh, Kubrick was, was in, in, in one way happy about this because it meant that when he did the exterior scenes, which had originally been planned for summer, he no longer had to fake them because it was well into uh, winter. Meanwhile, the, the uh, managers of the studio already booked other films to come in. Warren Beatty's uh, Russian um, Revolution story, Reds, and Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark were, were waiting for the space. Well, they'd have to wait quite a bit longer. Well, look, sir, I hate to put you through any trouble, but there's a family up there all by themselves with a young kid. And with this storm and everything, I'd sure appreciate it if you'd give them a call on your radio just to see if everything's okay. I'll be glad to do that, sir. Uh, why don't you call me back in about uh, 20 minutes? Thank you very much. I'll do that. All right, sir. John Alcott's photography and Roy Walker's design begin to show to advantage as the images become more fantastic. By filling this corridor with smoke, it gives an unreal dreamlike effect, but also prepares us for this extraordinary shot. Here's a case, for example, of a dolly shot that takes Jack across the ballroom with the entire crowd working 
This is the one big crowd scene in the movie. Not only filled with people, but filled with people from another era. Uh, it's it's a, a party of the 1920s. We accept it so readily because we've already accepted the idea of Turkel as the barman. So Kubrick has very cunningly led us into a presence inside Torrance's head. So we begin to share his reality, and increasingly his family seem completely marginalised. Stanley grumbled when I would rotate back to the States on the weeks off and weeks on. I think they rationalized it in the end that it was a productive thing. They could do the dolly shots while I was away and concentrate in the study cam when I was around. Stanley joked that the study cam would probably get credit for all the dolly shots in the movie anyway, which I certainly hope is true. I was sorry to miss this scene, though. This was said to have been a lot of fun. They dressed 200 people. Your money's no good here. The party in fact, turns up more and more as the story goes on until the, the final enigmatic image of the film is about this party. Orders. We're invited to think that, in a way, it's a party that is always going on, that it always has gone on, that the reality of, this, uh, of the hotel is a kind of loop in which uh, Torrance and all the rest of them are, are caught. Notice the haze in this room. That's oil smoke. The special effects smoke in that era was made by vaporizing drops of oil. That's not allowed on sets anymore. Anything you say, Lloyd. Anything you say. But it does create a wonderful atmosphere, and of course it became hugely important for all the exterior and winter stuff. And this is the party lighting for this ballroom scene, which was much tested before I left for the States. The great thing about lighting on dimmers like this is you can run it up, run it down, try it shoot it every which way and then sit there and absolutely pick the way you want it to look. This one is the perfectionist's way. Even that barroom lighting was much experimented with and it's very effective, that bottom light for Jack and for, for Joe. Stanley's daughter, Vivian, shot the documentary on the making of, very capably shot it with a handheld camera. She was 17 at the time and was everywhere on the set, a ghost. And quite trusted by the actors and so on, so she got some wonderful stuff. She's in this scene someplace, I'm told, but I've never been able to spot her. They dressed her as a 20s flapper. She's in here somewhere. Like most directors, Kubrick enjoyed working with actors he'd worked, in, worked with before. They were a kind of stock company, and now another one appears in the person of Philip Stone, uh, the English actor who also appears in uh, Clockwork Orange. There's something about familiarity that, uh, that, that works with directors like Kubrick. They don't like to uh, have to feel a, they need to uh, coach e each actor in exactly their way of working. Stone was phlegmatic in the best tradition of English actors, uh, like people like Murray Melvin, uh, who also appeared in, in various Kubrick movies. He was a, he was a person who was unflappable. Mr. Grady, <clears throat> haven't I seen you somewhere before? Why, no, sir. <laughs> I don't believe so. In this scene, the, the, Torrance gradually uh, realises that uh, uh, the waiter is, in fact, Grady, the, the previous uh, guardian of the hotel and the uh, father of and murderer of 
the the two children who appear uh, in frequent fantasies and uh, Stone's way of introducing himself of gradually admitting to to the truth uh, is is very effectively uh, done culminating uh, in this line really worthy of Boris Karloff in some ways I have always been here and we realize that Jack also has always been in the hotel Mr. Grady you were the caretaker here I recognize you I saw your picture in the newspapers you uh, chopped your wife and daughter up into little bits and uh, and you blew your brains out I don't have any recollection of that at all. Mr. Grady, you were the caretaker here. I'm sorry to differ with you, sir. But you... You've always been the caretaker. I should know, sir. I've always been here. This scene's particularly striking for the design, probably the most garish uh, urinal in the history of, of cinema. It relates somewhat to the Korolva milk bar in A Clockwork Orange with its its uh, pop art manifestations. This was uh, something that Kubrick uh, was finding increasingly fascinating, partly under the influence of his wife, Christiane, who was a, a painter herself. This is a great example of what happens to you on a, a big movie, a movie that takes a while. There are always times when the agenda of the director and the agenda of the chiefs, you might say, becomes not only incomprehensible but almost uninteresting to the, the crew. We are the, we're the workers. We are responsible to get it to happen. But once the scene commences in one of these sets, how long we're there is, is out of our control. Not only how long we work in that set, but how long the scene takes. And this is a scene that Stanley must particularly have wanted to slow down the movie and accomplish at this pace. This scene is actually much more compelling and revealing than it might at first seem because the very stilted dialogue, which could almost be out of a, a, a rather second-rate film of the 1930s, in fact addresses the themes of The Shining, the idea of uh, childhood and children being rebellious and needing to be, as, as Stone says, corrected, and when their mother intervenes on the side of the children of the mother also needs to be corrected which in in his case and as the red walls reflect ended with their murder and dismemberment 
And uh, on the other hand, in the background is the old 1920s ballad, Home, which evokes exactly the values for which uh, these two men are supposed to be standing up, but which in this context has uh, a really sinister note, which is emphasized by the red and also by the stilted positions of the two actors. They're not even trying to communicate physically. It's all done in the eyes. Philip Stone's eyeline doesn't even look like he's looking at Jack in this scene. He looks like he's looking off to the wall to his right. It's curious. It's very curious. The overall effect is something like a 1930s horror movie, but, but also something like a kind of nightmare dream which you know is going to, to end in, in violence. And it's beautifully staged, all the more so for being completely still. Probably the hardest thing for... Kubrick to, to do was to persuade his actors not to do anything, merely to convey something uh, with their body language. Poor Shelley spent however, however long it was, a hundred days maybe, in hysterics. The fortitude of the actors during this, these scenes was amazing to me. Relatively easy for us. We show up, we do our mechanical tricks. But when the emotional is your palate, your stock and trade, and you're at the high end, the high, hot end of the spectrum, day after day, that's a phenomenon. What if Jack won't come with us? We'll just have to tell him that we're going by ourselves. That's all there is to it. Even Danny had to be at an amazingly controlled pitch. His little Tony voice getting deeper and deeper and more interesting. exactly the same amount as my camera weighed. And so if I took the camera off and made a sling on the so-called mechanical arm that flew everything and floated it, I could float Danny Lloyd as if, he, as if there was no gravity and run along with him lofting up and down beside me and laughing hysterically. This is KDK-1, calling KDK-12. 
KDK-1, calling KDK-12. Are you receiving me? Jack actually had a lot of respect for Danny and was very interested by him. Everyone did. Even Stanley, who said some really wonderful things about Danny. And in the background, during all of this work, is the very idiosyncratic English way of making movies, which at the time was very orderly, uh, but somewhat chaotic, if you can accept that uh, combination, in that the personalities were, you know, had they spoken Cockney slang, rhyming slang half the time. They were insouciant and uh, disrespectful and uh, joking half the time. And yet uh, the proceedings were very civilized. There was a great deal of formal courtesy between certain departments. Uh, the tea and bacon roll trolley came around regularly in the morning and the afternoon, and you had a, a break to contemplate a cup of tea and an utterly vile, grease-covered so-called bacon roll, which, uh, from my taste, is bacon with a large grisly bit in the middle. And then, as of the evening when the day had gone on about 10 or 12 hours, we were released, and I went back to the village of Boreham Wood and stayed in my little odd hotel room at the top of an old kind of mansion that had been turned into a hotel and looked out over the English green belt. It was a very, very, very different time, not only for movie making, but of course for the way we lived. I was in a considerable degree of isolation from my family in the U.S. Transatlantic phone calls were a rarity. No computers, no email, no nothing. The company did not go on location very gracefully, although all of Barry Lyndon had been on location. They were somewhat out of the habit by the time of The Shining, so it was like rounding up a collection of ducks to get us all to somewhere to do, a, to do one of these shots. The only other location that I can recall was a airplane shot that was done in a grounded airplane, British Airways plane. And here again was a case of big flat light outside the plane. It could have been anywhere. I'm always struck by how, how beautiful the light is in this set from nothing more than those, those huge outdoor soft lights and the practicals on dimly. And a bit of a fire in the fireplace, if you noticed. Tell you more about that in a bit. This was a stock shot, I think. And of course, they only landed the plane once, which is a unique moment in the photography of The Shining. One take, one take only. I was struck by how realistic the snow effects were by the time they were timed this deep blue. Again, all the smoke to create that atmosphere was oil smoke released upwind from the set and wafted into the set by guys with big boards, wafters. And very cleverly, of course, they spot the wind direction and uh, release the smoke just upwind. This telephone box was imported from the U.S. and planted, I think, at a local airport. That was another location, John. This is Tony Burton, the actor on the other end of the line with Scatman, who turned out to be a very good chess player. And I would often find Stanley and Tony Burton dueling with, duking it out with a chessboard. And Stanley was a little annoyed at being beaten once by Tony, which was amazing, because Stanley was, I think as a kid, was a, a master, if not a grandmaster, chess player. But Tony was a very bright guy, and I think managed to beat him once, and that was a, a celebrated event on the set. Unreliable assholes. Almond phoned me last night, and I'm supposed to go up there and find out if they have to be replaced. How long is it going to take you to get up here? 
Oh, about five hours. I'm going to rent a car here at the airport. Okay, Dick, I'll take care of it. Oh, thanks a lot, Larry. I really appreciate that. That's all right. Drive carefully. This was shot just up the road with and was salted in, and then in my memory, real snow appeared. And all of these sets were infested with smoke, vast, vast quantities of smoke. Wolf Creek and Red Mountain passes are already closed, and the chain law is in effect right now. The dailies looked very much as you see them here. In other words, we didn't see them in a rudimentary form. We saw the scene as it would appear in the movies because one of the things Stanley controlled were what are called the printing lights in the lab. He actually specified the amount of the various colors of light that would be put through the film when it was printed. So those exterior snow scenes, those wintry scenes, would normally have looked almost brown or, or orange because of the quality of the real light. But with the blue printing lights printed through, or the lights that yielded blue in the print, that produced the winter effect, and that's what we looked at in dailies. Stanley loved film, the chemistry of it, the physics, even the mechanics. He, he liked watching the study cam at work. Never tried it on, though. Tried to get him to try it on once, but he wouldn't do it. I'm just going to go and talk to Daddy for a few minutes. And I'll be right back. Now, I want you to just stay here and watch your cartoons, okay? Okay, honey? Yes, Mrs. Torrance. just about five minutes. I'm going to lock the door behind me. Danny's growing up right before our eyes here. I think it's a good thing this did not take two years or three years to shoot because that could have required digital special effects. It would be interesting to see that scene cut directly with the first scene in the movie where Danny appears. In another ominous tracking shot, Shelley enters the lounge and discovers the, the secret of Jack's um, uh, supposed work on his... Uh, his classic novel on which he's been typing endlessly throughout the story. Kubrick loved gadgets, especially electrical gadgets, and was, was delighted to have an electrical typewriter uh, and uh, used to use it uh, constantly, uh, demonstrating its, uh, its uh, possibilities. And the chance to create a completely fantastic text for... Um, Jack's novel was was just overwhelming. So um, he had the the text made up entirely of the phrase repeated over and over again. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Having done this, decided that there should be, in fact, a real manuscript of five hundred or so pages, uh, so that uh, it would be absolutely authentic. And so. Uh, secretary was employed to to type out 
the same phrase over and over again, sometimes as, as, as text, sometimes as dialogue, uh, sometimes as description, so that no matter where uh, Shelley dipped into the pile of paper, uh, she would find a, a credible page. Stanley's secretary, Margaret Adams, spent months, months typing every moment that Margaret wasn't doing something else. Margaret was spitting out dozens and dozens of sheets a day. And of course, they were formatted differently for each sheet. One of the best conceptions in the book, though, I think, and in the film. And all the typos and all the weirdnesses of typewriters really made it work. Of course, in this era, with computers and printers, this scene would have, A, made no sense, and B, had no point. She wrecked them every time Shelley pulled them up, so new ones were needed. This is a wonderful scene. To me, one of the most effective in the, in the film. The next scene caused one of the, the major difficulties uh, in the film because it involves uh, Shelley at attacking Nicholson with the baseball bat that she's carrying around. Kubrick agreed with, with Nicholson that there should be a stuntman for the role, but, of course, couldn't just choose a single stuntman. How do you like it? <laughs> he summoned every available stuntman uh, in London to come to the set and then each of them uh, had to be given a jacket equivalent to the jacket that, uh, that Jack wore. And uh, then each person had to be screen tested for Nicholson. In the end, the supervisor, the head of the stunt unit, was the man who eventually doubled uh, Nicholson in the fall uh, down the stairs after he's attacked uh, by uh, Shelley. Let's talk. What do you want to talk about? I... I can't really remember. You can't remember? No. I can't. These scenes took place while I was shooting Rocky II. So this entire sequence when Shelley was backed up the steps by Jack swinging her bat, was shot by Ray Andrew, my understudy, you might say, for Steadicam. I wasn't present for the uh, blood pouring out of the elevator scene either. That was done quite late in the schedule, not in sequence. Apparently, that was a one-taker or maybe a two-taker. I think they cleaned it all up and did it twice and then decided it was too much work, but it worked miraculously well. That blood, by the way, is called Kensington Gore. It's the actual motion picture blood that they sell in small quantities for wounds. And Stanley insisted on having two or 3,000 gallons of Kensington Gore, which is very expensive stuff, but it behaves like blood. With a schedule this long, I suppose it's clotting time would become a, a factor. They were greatly unhappy that I was leaving, um, somewhat suspicious of poor Ray, although I have to say, looking at the stuff that he did, he did a fine job. The English crew was tough. They were, they were rough. I mean, they would give people nicknames and make fun of them in some ways. 
They called poor Ray unstudy Ray, which is not true. He did a great job. But it was just, it was just their way. I have to say, I think this stuff is indistinguishable from what I might have done with it, and very difficult. I'm also sure that these scenes were shot over and over and over. Now, where in the spectrum of apathy to hysteria is this performance from Jack? Did he actually do some that were quiet, or were we all in this, at this level of intensity? And look at Shelley. This is a form of torture. I observed Stanley being quite cruel to her at times. I think coldly, just pragmatically, to get her into a certain state for the shot. And she put up with it. She endured it. And she delivered for him. I've got to hand it to her for that. My responsibilities to my employers. I do like the scene, though. I like the continual backing up. It's one of the fewer shots that plays continuously in a longer lens, a little longer lens. That might have been a 50 mil on Jack, and this is probably a 35 on Shelley. You have the slightest idea what a moral and ethical principle is, do you? Has it ever occurred to you what would happen to my future if I were to fail to live up to my responsibilities? Has it ever occurred to you? Has it? Why? I just want to go back to my room. Why? You've had your whole fucking life to think things over. What good's a few minutes more gonna do you now? Stay away from me. Please! Don't hurt me. I'm not gonna hurt you. Stay away from me! Wendy? Stay away! Darling, light of my life. I'm not gonna hurt you. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I said, I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains in. I'm gonna bash him right the fuck in. <laughs> Stay away from me. Don't hurt me. I'm not gonna hurt you. Stay away from me. Stay away. Please. Stop swinging the bat. Stay away from me. Put the bat down, Wendy. Stop it. Wendy, give me the bat. Stop swinging the bat. Please stop. Give me the bat, Wendy. Give me the bat. Give me the bat. Ah, God There's an interesting parallel between what happens now to Jack and what happens with Hal at the end of uh, uh, 2001. In both cases, the, the, the evil person is incapacitated uh, in, uh, and then sort of deteriorates into another mode, be tries to appear more amiable, becomes more innocent, uh, appeals to the person who is, who is attacking them, tries, tries to use all uh, its guile to, uh, to stop uh, its destruction. So uh, in 2001, Hal uh, says, uh, you can't do this, you can't do this, I feel my mind is going, and then becomes a sort of infant uh, singing a bicycle built for two. 
But now Jack, locked up uh, by his wife, also reverts to uh, an earlier stage of, uh, of uh, reality, becoming like the, the loving husband, like the pathetic figure that, uh, that uh, he was, uh, even to um, trying to tell her what she most wants to hear that uh, he's ill and needs treatment, that he loves her, that he, that he is the Jack that uh, she, she knew before, but fortunately she doesn't succumb. Incidentally, Stanley himself is lying on the ground underneath Jack with his handheld Aeroflex. I brought a wireless little video transmitter made in the States because I really didn't want any cables attached to me so Stanley could watch what I was shooting running around here and there. And particularly in the maze, film cameras produce video so that the directors and so on can see what's being shot as a byproduct, in effect. And study cam operators use that video up on our little green screen so that we can see what we're shooting, because you can't operate study cam with your eye on the viewfinder. So, unfortunately, the transmitter that I brought was terrible, and I never heard the end of it. The signal would disappear and you know, it was worse than useless, so I ended up lugging a cable around. And I found a, a man in London who had built a better video transmitter that was hooked up to the mains, as they call it, plugged in, and persuaded him to make a 12-volt version, and that actually worked. So all of these scenes, study cam scenes, were done sending the video off by wireless, just as if we were a little TV station to Stanley and the watching crowd at the, the monitor, which became tremendously important when we finally got into the maze. But at one point, Stanley must have had a horrible thought that the neighbors in Boreham Wood, these ranks and ranks of houses just over that little hill, all of whom had big yaggy antennas aimed at London for their TVs, he became afraid that they might be sitting there watching what we were shooting in the morning. And I made the mistake of imitating a Monty Python woman in the crowd of women going, Ooh, poor Mr. Brad. Stanley's being very cruel to him today. Or, Ooh, it must be the 24 Distagon lens. It's vignetting around the edges. The women got more sophisticated as the shooting went on. And he overheard me and then was afraid that his stuff was being seen by them. So I assured Stanley that the studio walls would never let the signal out because they had a wire mesh in the wall. And then I took a portable monitor outside and walked around and to my horror quite often here and there would be a perfect signal from inside the studio by some weird chance of RF propagation or whatever you might say and Stanley you know believed he knew something about every form of human activity and had large arguments with me about antennas for receiving the signal and mine for sending it and so on many of which turned out to be he turned out to be right which was even more disturbing but what I did was I learned where the signal didn't come out, so I offered to show Stanley, and we walked around and with this little battery monitor, and I took him to all the places where the signal didn't get out, so he was quite satisfied that nobody anywhere could have seen what we were doing. And so I was permitted to continue using this wonderful device, which is still a mainstay of Steadicam operating, because it's terrible to be hooked to a cable when you have got all the freedom that we've got normally. In a sense, you can see the nervousness of the 
film being reflected in the the speed with which these titles appear at the beginning of the film the titles are one month later three months earlier now their times four o'clock six o'clock eight o'clock you have this sense of the pace quickening in the same way we now find ourselves completely in torrance's madness for the first time we see the evil of the of the hotel manifested in some manipulation of physical objects when he's actually let out of his prison by Grady. Jack, by now, has two physical infirmities that he has to include in his acting regimen from here to the end of the movie. One is the sprained ankle, and the other is the famous cut on his head, which is described in the endless numbers of call sheets as Jack's blood makeup. And Jack was put in Jack's blood makeup every day from the 15th of November to the 12th of January, which is as long as the entire schedule for most movies. And of course, every other aspect, hair, wardrobe, the same boots, the same socks, the same shirt, find their way back on him every day, all day. The stubble has to be the same length. All this stuff, of course, you know if you've paid attention to the way movies are made, but you know it all seems in starker relief when you consider it in the context of a movie that goes on like this. This was the amazing power that Stanley had. He could just simply keep going. Empire Strikes Back was standing by to come into those stages in Borum Wood, and they waited for months for Stanley to finish. And we had most of the place tied up, so they waited. They just waited. Finally, in fact, the Colorado lounge set, which was on stage three, burned down. Your wife appears to be stronger than we imagined, Mr. Torrance. Somewhat more resourceful. She seems to have got the better of you. The moment, Mr. Grady. Just a few close-ups remain to be shot. This had happened also in 2001, where the, the giant centrifuge set had burst into flames. Now the whole set of the hotel burned down. This was a disaster, of course. As long as it was, was burned down, they could simply tear down the, the rest of the set, build the new set for their other clients, particularly Warren Beatty's film Reds and Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark, and start from scratch. But they didn't take into account Kubrick's obsessive respect for contracts. He said that under the agreement he had with them, they had to provide the set, even if all he had to shoot on it were a few close-ups. It was only at the very last minute that Spielberg could move in with Raiders of the Lost Ark. And in fact, while he was shooting, uh, Kubrick was still editing uh, The Shining at the same time as the uh, Spielberg film was being shot. This was done, by the way, in Washington State, I think. And then this shot of Scatman was Stanley's front projection once more. Front projection was how Kubrick did the African monolith scene that began 2001. It's a very clever trick. Rear projection is there's a screen back there, and they project a movie on it from the other side of the screen, and, and 
it always looks somewhat projected. Front projection involves a half-silvered mirror angled in front of the lens. The projection is shot down against that mirror and bounces out to the 3M material screen at the other side of wherever, windows in a car, etc., with perfect accuracy because it comes from the center of the film camera's lens. And then it bounces back and is perceived at any level of exposure at really high resolution. The reason I mention it, of course, is because I'm still impressed, even more impressed than I was, over the quality of the matching between the real snow stuff shot in Washington or Oregon and the fake snow, salt, and styrofoam that we ended up making in Boreham Wood. Now, to Jack's repertoire of physical infirmities, we add a prop that he must carry for the rest of the movie, the axe. I like this, the way this axing, swinging the axe scene is uh, operated. The regular operator, Kelvin Pike, did it on a so-called geared head. Two turns back, two forward, two back, two forward. And of course, there were six or eight doors standing by, and each door chopped through quite differently. Danny sliding down salt. It's very effective, isn't it? Doesn't it look like snow? It's great.
Come out, come out, wherever you are. by the hair on your chinny chin chin then I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house in I was of course in the bathroom being the only camera rig that could fit in there the room was the size it looks tiny now I was standing right by the door as that axe blade came through Splinters flying like on the deck of a 18th century man of war, wearing no helmet, no eyeglasses, no OSHA-required full body armor. It's a much more casual age to do with things like safety. I can tell you that required a lot of fortitude on my part not to flinch when that blade kept coming through there. Here's Johnny! This is Stanley's hand with the actual knife, a trick knife with blood in it. There's a second unit shot in real snow showing the hotel, the real hotel on Mount Hood. Those snow scenes that will come to dominate the, the last sequences in this film involved a vast amount of human labor and a lot of environmentally difficult things going on. Nicholson is a staring actor. He has these piercing eyes. And as, as the story goes on, the eyes become increasingly significant in, in Nicholson's performance. We begin to see the madness uh, arrive uh, through the eyes. And here is the same snowcat, or similar, in the salt at Boromwood. Wonderful match. If anybody had reason to regret his part in The Shining, it was uh, Scatman Crothers. Uh, not only was his role radically changed in the film version, in the movie he's axed uh, by Torrance almost the moment he steps into the hotel after his his uh, uh, heroic uh, voyage across country to uh, uh, to rescue them. In the book, uh, he rescues uh, the wife and child of uh, of uh, Torrance and takes them away from the hotel. Uh, but on top of that, Kubrick demanded uh, numerous takes on. Uh, his uh, fall after he's been attacked by uh, Torrance. Crothers recalled later on, somebody said something about me being too old to fall down that many times. And Jack Nicholson jumps up and says, who says my man's too old to fall down? Why, he can fall down 50 or 60 times if he has to. I wound up having to go to a chiropractor. I was hurting so bad. My arms and elbows and neck and head got kind of beat up. One of my favorite sequences in the movie is Jack's pursuit and destruction of Scatman. We were a bit shocked to find that Scatman was actually going to be killed. 
This is almost a classic study cam shot. The timing is very organic with Jack, something that would be hard to do with a dolly and a dolly pusher and an operator trying to communicate. Not to mention going up the stairs. But it's wide angle. That has to be done at some distance or, you know, forgive the expression, but Jack's ass would have looked enormous if you were following him too closely up the stairs. The timing of it had to almost time with his limp and stop dead and hold as a so-called over-the-shoulder. Hello? Anybody here? another of my favorite shots. This is three flights carrying the BL, which weighed altogether about 60, 70 pounds. We did 35 takes. It occurred to me later that that's the equivalent of climbing the Empire State Building, lugging the study cam. It's, you know, a hundred and some stories. But it really wasn't all that difficult because it was do the shot, three-minute playback, three-minute argument about the crosshairs. Could have done it forever. And yes, folks, I don't know. <laughs> Just another day on The Shining. Exterior maze, of course, wasn't out there. It was just the near wall of it. But a wonderful lighting effect when it was lit up. Jack actually threw the switches that turned it on. The exterior scenes, when it was actually snowing, and when the people making smoke were doing their thing, must have been an astonishing sight from Borum Wood right over the hill. It would have been like 
War of the Worlds almost, the rising pall of smoke, which of course blew down over the town. The escaped bits of styrofoam snow tumbling down out of giant bins up on cranes, the cranes sticking up as high as you know, Martian creatures in War of the Worlds. All visible from town, you know, and the, if there was a breeze, the styrofoam coated the town. The, the smoke pall dimmed the lights in Boromwood. It made me think while I was there that this is the equivalent of a steel town, you know, of a Pittsburgh in the steel area, you know, polluted by the local industry but unable to care or, or mind because the, the money, the, the income of the town is derived from it. And we were in the maze for months. And the crews used to move around within the, the mazes, but which became a problem after a while, especially when they were shooting in fog and snow, because even though they were all given maps, many of them actually got lost, not within the avenues of the maze, but inside the, the, the mazes, the, 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 the actual objects of the, the hedges the, themselves. We would go in the maze and almost immediately get lost. It was impossible to tell where you were. Uh, it was an intensely difficult set from the temperature and the fact that it was a fire hazard, terrible fire hazard. The family was a maze. The idea of, of psychology is a maze. The, the intricacies of hum, the human mind are a maze. And in the end, of course, it's in a maze that Jack reaches his apotheosis and dies. Uh, in the original uh, story, there is uh, out in the garden a number of what are called topiary animals, uh, animals sculpted out of plants. And in the uh, in the original novel, these come to life and and rampage around. But uh, Kubrick never liked that image very much and replaced it with that of a maze. got back from one of my little Concord trips, and this work had just been done. I wasn't present for it. These skeletons were almost a disappointment. I mean, they were like conventional horror movie stuff. It was almost like a letdown that the purity of this shining scheme had somehow been violated by somebody who wanted to see some real horror movie props and paraphernalia, complete with glue, cobwebs, and the whole business. This, by the way, was a great tour de force. I actually had some shoes made with little Danny-sized kind of little stilt-like things, so it made me even taller than I was. And I did a reverse angle of this, backing up in Danny's footprints while he was making that fake misleading set of footprints that stop. <laughs> I recall seeing the trailer for this film and seeing this shot. Of course, it was nearly a year after we'd finished working on it because it was 
in editing for quite a while. But I had not seen even the dailies on that bloodshot, so that was amazing. That's real sweat on Jack, it was very hot. And those of us who gave it a thought were terrified of fire because if it did catch fire, there would be no way to find your way out. If it caught fire and went dark, it would be even worse. But fortunately for all of us, it never did. This is another case of now in so-called low mode flying that ultra-wide lens. This was a, actually a handheld shot of mine. So here is that 9.8 millimeter lens held dead level. Penetrating space, pushing through space revealing God knows what. I sometimes wonder about these commentary tracks, whether it's a mistake to raise the curtain on all of this. But I suppose you wouldn't be listening to it if you didn't want to know. There was no way to plan any of it. You just, Jack went somewhere and I reacted. This is done in an a mode called the Don Juan mode of Steadicam, where you run forward, but you're shooting backwards. This is almost like a bit of dance, totally ad-libbed, not the same twice. Stanley off somewhere, watching it on video, wireless video, shouting in comments sometimes by walkie-talkie acting like some sort of wrathful Nielsen family, watching, <laughs> judging, controlling the content. Between my legs was a little fill light on a stick. Over my head was a sound man's boom. When we ran ahead of Jack, the three of us had to run and not fall over one another, our boots rotting in the salt. And yet, it looks cold. Very, very cold. Kubrick by nature wasn't a, a maker of horror films. He'd turned down the, the chance uh, to make The Exorcist and Exorcist II, uh, which he'd thought banal. But uh, in this, he obviously felt there was more to be said, that the Stephen King story could be a vehicle for uh, his own disturbed feelings about childhood, about uh, family, about the relationship between fathers and sons. 
in the research he read uh, books by people like Bruno Bettelheim on what exactly it is that terrifies us, what are the sort of things that, that address the basic human fears. And he and Diane Johnson wove this into uh, the story, making it much more of a psychological portrait and less of uh, a horror movie. of Jack that was amazingly lifelike, frozen in the end. It was always Kubrick's idea to take a devalued genre and kind of scrape the barnacles off the bottom and relaunch it with his own particular style. He was very successful doing this. He did it with, particularly with 2001, with the science fiction uh, film. He did it with the, the period film in Barry Lyndon. In each case, he, he was able to do what he most liked to do, which is to show off uh, his, his incredible technical facility, his imagination, uh, his unique vision. It's very hard when you've worked on a film to see it as an audience might see it. And the audience for this film keeps changing it. It was, in effect, my generation back then. I was, what, 36 when I shot this film. I'm now 64, and it's become a, a favorite, a cult favorite. It's still a favorite of young people. It still ranks very high among people's favorite films. Like every Kubrick film, its stature increases with each year. So increasingly, as with 2001 and Barry Lyndon and, and Full Metal Jacket, it, it seems now less to be a part of the genre than, than a genre all of its own. I'm very sorry for no further opportunity to be with Stanley or work with Stanley. Most of all, I'm sorry not to have a chance to see another Kubrick film and another and another. I think that the movie business is much poorer for his death. He was unique. 